pyramid, there isn't really a strategy necessarily, but instead there's a story. Um, and rather than like this posture of we're going to create change or help or save, there is instead this posture of transformation. Hi, I'm Lacey Clark Elman of AsacredJourney.net. I'm a spiritual director, facilitator, and guide, and you're listening to Pilgrim Podcast, a show exploring spirituality and intention in travels and daily life and what it means to live like a pilgrim at home and abroad. This episode is brought to you by Journey Guide, a step-by-step travel companion for your pilgrimage of a lifetime. Journey Guide is a multimedia travel resource infused with soul, including guides and writing prompts for each stage of the journey, worksheets and resources to go deeper, interviews with seasoned pilgrims, and more. Learn more about how Journey Guide can enhance your next pilgrimage at asacredjourney.net. Today I'm talking to spiritual director, writer, and contemplative activist Ryan Kuja about the practice of contemplative activism. Let's begin the journey. Hey Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm honored to um, have a chance to talk more. Yeah, well there's been a lot going on, I know, this past year and this summer and of course around the world. There's always many things going on that aren't even talked about in our, our Western news cycle. And I wanted to know how to, how to respond to that. And so I knew you as someone who's a spiritual director, but also an activist as well would be the perfect person to consult. Yeah, I think these are such big questions for, for all of us. Um, and we, you know, we feel compelled to help. And we want to help and we want to act and respond. And yeah, I think a lot of a lot of it is how we can actually make some kind of small impact. And I think that's really what this whole kind of contemplative lens kind of facilitates and brings us deeper into. And so I guess we're, yeah, looking at... Um, the action and what's behind the action and sort of the discernment of the action and kind of bringing the inner and the outer together in a way. Yeah. Well, let's start with who you are in your own journey, because I think a lot of that has led you here and then dive into to those ways and that combining of the, the inner and outer. So could you tell us about your spiritual journey, which I know involves some mission work and it evolved into contemplation and really changed the way you look at a lot of those things as well. Yeah, it did. It did indeed. So I would say just going going back, um, we grew up, my family was Catholic, but culturally Catholic. Um, didn't really go to church or really didn't have much of a, a spirituality um, or even a even a, a faith um, at all. But at some point along the way, um, I developed actually, and I haven't talked too, too much about this openly. It's only been in the last, um, I don't know, maybe the last few years I've started to open up hmm. more about this particular piece. But it was really um, uh, a struggle with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, when hmm. I was in my early teens, early to mid-teens, um, that brought me to a place just of really 
debilitating fear and anxiety and mm. confusion. And I didn't know, like, I didn't know that I had OCD. Like, I didn't know, like, okay, you're having these obsessions and these compulsions. Be- and this is like a diagnosable thing that can be treated and whatever. I just thought I was, I thought I was strange. I thought I was messed up. I thought I was just had this weird thing about me. So I tried my hardest to keep it a secret and I didn't tell anyone about Mm. it. Um, But it really, that brought me to this low point um, Mm. when I was like 17 and I just asked, like I poured myself out, like, is there, is there a presence? Like, is there a God? Mm. Is there something bigger than me? Cause I'm at the end of my rope and like, I, I am just, I need, I need help. Yeah. And so in, um, in a particular moment of just pouring myself out, I felt a, a presence that I had never felt before, um, that some would call, some would call God, this loving presence, this deeply, deeply loving divine presence that I sense with me, um, and it changed so much for me that the anxiety left, the fear left. I remember even that night um, when this experience occurred, like falling asleep in a, a deep, deep peace. Um, and that was sort of the beginning, the beginning of my spiritual walk. Um, and it was interesting around that time, that was also like in those weeks kind of following that when I felt this freedom from these obsessive fears and these compulsive responses, um, I felt compelled by this idea that my life didn't have to only be about me, like it could be bigger than just about me. And I started thinking really for the first time, like about um, bigger issues and just um, just, I think I started developing a, a sensitivity to the injustice in the world and trying to do really, I mean, small things like, you know, at that point I was, I guess, headed into college and didn't have much money, but occasionally I would get a bunch of friends together and we'd, um, raise money for something. And just, just these really like small kind of, um, in a sense, like, what a what a child would do or or a 17 or 18 year old would do um so that is sort of there's this this tie-in between um experiencing this divine presence and and this kind of sense of my life can be more than just about me um and so that journey kind of it developed and um it led me to want to pursue uh, more formally, like cross-cultural service work. Yeah. So yeah, I ended up living overseas for the first time when I was 20. So just a few years after that, um, I lived in South Africa. um, And I mainly, I went to school in in Cape Town, studied at University of Cape Town. But really, one of the main reasons I went was to just accompany the poor um, and this was before I'd studied, I hadn't studied theology yet. I didn't know. I was just, I was just a dude. I was just a <laughs> college kid. I was just a uh-huh. surfer. Um, but I thought the only thing I knew how to do was just like m- become friends with the homeless folks who lived in my neighborhood. So it was kind of a, a seedy neighborhood, not a particularly wealthy neighborhood in Cape Town. Um, 
and I would just hang out with my homeless neighbors and have them over for dinner and take them to appointments and we would just like walk up the street to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and they really love Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> they love Kentucky Fried Chicken and they uh-huh. got that chicken clean down to the bone uh-huh. <laughs> like I've never seen before but um yeah and then so it's just it's been this progression mm-hmm. of um kind of entering into these different seasons of of service um overseas and then also seasons of of deep wrestling and reflection mm. here at, at home um not overseas and not in sort of a traditional service capacity yeah. um and that's you know part of what led me into the contemplative because it that initial experience, um, that initial transformative experience when I was in high school, that it wasn't like that led to um, like an immediately maturing spirituality. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it certainly didn't. Because I definitely got mixed up in in toxic religion um, in forms of church and faith that were anything but healthy um and that to a large degree covered over Mm. that experience of of love um divine love but um it was certainly like a tumult has been a a tumultuous path but part of that um was also related to sort of this mission missional cross-cultural service work well yeah because it sounds like I know I grew up in a tradition that was very mission centric, mission trip, went on many a mission trip. And um, so it, it sounds like it has that element of um, helping those in need and that somehow it was informed by your spiritual experience. And yet what you're describing seems a little different than what I think many of us might imagine as uh, mission work. So I wonder what for you, what was different maybe there for you or if it was yeah. kind of more similar and how has that changed? Like I, like you mentioned with that missional, you know, the different ways of, of mm-hmm. viewing that work. And I know um, you probably took, we, Ryan and I went to school together and um, Indeed. yeah. And uh, so I imagine you took the Celtic spirituality class too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that Celtic versus Roman way exactly. of mission as well. So totally. enlighten us. Yeah, well, it's this interesting thing, because as I look back, and I'm like, I was 20 years old living in South Africa, and in a sense, I was like, ahead of my time, but I didn't know it, like, I'd never heard Mm. the word, like, incarnational ministry, or accompaniment, a ministry of accompaniment, as I look back, and it's like, wow, that that was actually some of the healthiest, quote, unquote, mission or faith based service work. So what that experience Mm. did was, it sort of, I wanted, I wanted more. I wanted like, I wanted to serve in more concrete ways. Um, being a good American, right? It, like we, we value getting things done and we value um, accomplishing and achieving. And so there was a shift in me. Um, so I left South Africa, finished grad, finished uh, undergrad, went to do a short graduate program in humanitarian assistance um, in England at a really great place called the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And I wanted to be an aid worker. 
and like aid work is is kind of the polar opposite from living in in Cape Town and hanging out with homeless guys, um, homeless families, you know. But that's what I wanted to do. I was, it was this youthful kind of um, not not bad. Um, and of course, hindsight is is twenty twenty, and I can see this process unfold. But this youthful kind of I want to. Well, I call it the three S's of mission: serve, save, and sacrifice. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted mm. to sacrifice <laughs> myself, serve, and and of course, <laughs> yes, and not in. Not so much um, in an evangelistic sense, uh-huh. not so much save people's souls, but yeah. I wanted to be in a context of profound poverty and be mm. a, a, a save people in terms of phys- physicality and issues of, of hunger and clean water and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I ended up doing um, with an organization called Medair, which is a faith-based um, emergency relief humanitarian aid organization. I got a job with them as a field logistics manager, which, um, regardless of the title, basically we were in a, uh, rural village in South Sudan, um, right near the banks of the white Nile way, way out as the logo people refer to it as, as the bush. Um, so no roads or anything, everything's flown in. So their kind of base was in the organization's base was in Northwest Kenya. Um, and we would fly into the, into the field locations, living in tents, everything was flown in food, everything. Um, so the living conditions were, were really difficult for one. Um, it was a situation of just kind of post-war, post-war context. So the North and South had been in civil war since uh, 1983. So it was the end of um, basically 22 years of brutal civil war between the North and the South. Um, everybody carried an AK-47 pretty much, certainly like a, a culture of, uh-huh. of war because it just had been going on for generations even before it began and the latest one began in 1983 there was um decades previous to that so anyway yeah really hard living conditions um and i showed up though with this kind of again like youthful naivete i'm gonna really really help and really do great things um in that kind of living there a lot a lot collapsed um it was really difficult psychologically spiritually physically um sick all the time um it really kind of it it kicked my butt living Mm -hmm. there um and i ended up um having to come home sooner than i thought i thought i was going to be there a few years um, and I thought this was like the kickoff of my like career as a, you know, an aid worker, like a faith-based, um, humanitarian aid worker. And that was, you know, what I wanted at the time, but, um, it, it all kind of collapsed. Um, and I ended up in this state of disillusionment, um, and kind of, yeah, deep confusion. Um, things just did not work out as I, as I thought they would. And that was a really big impetus toward the 
not only the contemplative life, um, and it, and it was several years later, even that I developed contemplative practices, no, but one, even just, a name for it, I'm sure. Yeah. Even a name for it. And I was still at that point, I mean, I was only 23 and 35 now. So that was, this is like, Oh six. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was another kind of big stage, but it was through this path of it all, of it all collapsing for, for a variety of, of reasons. And I talk about, I talk a little bit about that or quite a bit about that in, in the book as well. Which you should probably mention. Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's so interesting to, to look back. Like, well, I imagine it's telling this story almost that you're telling the story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Certainly telling the story. Um, yeah. So the book looks at, um, a lot of things that we do wrong in mission and that I did wrong in mission. Mm. Um, but it really tries to integrate. I mean, I'm a big fan of mission. I'll start by saying that. Like I, and, and I say in the book, I start with a deep yes to mission, mm. um, but follow it with a critique of my own participation, yeah. uh, mainly and sort of the broader North American church's participation in, in how we do mission in ways that don't necessarily honor yeah. uh, the dignity of the poor, the economically marginalized. Um, and so it's really looking at the integration of mission with with formation, um, mm. theologically, psychologically, um, cross-culturally, um, and culturally, not in terms of just learning something about the culture, um, where we're going to enter, um, learning the language or whatever, but as much about our own culture, as yeah. much about what does it mean that I have this, this lens, this, yeah. this lens called culture. Cause for a long time, like for many years, I didn't even know that I had a culture, you know, like we often Mm. see culture as like, it's something out there. Yeah. Or these places that you were going to, you're experiencing their culture and then you'd come home, which is just home. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but just like having, um, having been invited into this kind of uh, a look at my own, like, what is, what does it mean to be a North American? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to have grown up where I grew, where I grew up in a town that was of 2000 people and and 98% white. And even what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be white? And what is that? Like, what is whiteness? How does that impact how I see people, how I see the so-called other? Yeah. Well, it seems like what you're bringing, you know, it's not just that that save piece of maybe like this message or able hands or even money, but you're bringing your own perspective too. And so often that's unrecognized, your own cultural influences. Completely your own assumptions, attitudes, beliefs that really, I mean, to a large degree operate unconsciously. And until we do the the work of awareness and coming to see those, because it's really like culture, to a large degree is it's it's certainly like a lens yeah. we see through more than something we see in us, you know, mm-hmm. but yet it shapes it shapes everything and we can never escape it. Yeah. And we can never escape context. Well, and it seems like for you, this uh, this lens of contemplation has led you to that place where you can begin to name, to recognize, to hold both that desire 
and to to help to aid and that realization of what you bring to the conversation too yes yeah for sure and um you know i think a big part of it for me has been um this work of integration so coming to see that action and contemplation or we might also say mission and spirituality mm-hmm. hmm. in the christian tradition even originally weren't really ever like compartmentalized and split off at least originally they were seen as two distinct aspects of this one this single contiguous um process Mm -hmm. but again being like we're good americans we're trained in in greek logic and we have (laughs) these western minds right which are it's so i mean there's so many gifts that that come out of that um that style, that left brain style of, of, of thinking and engaging. Um, and it's not all bad. It's just the integration yeah. of the other. Um, and it's also interesting, like to trace sort of not only my personal narrative and to look mm. back and reflect on where I've come from and, and kind of looking at these sequence of events and why they unfolded the way they did. And, but looking at like the broader Christian narrative and looking at kind of like the rise of the Western church and, and how we got to this place collectively. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really fascinating to, um, to connect those dots. Like we can see, say from, I don't know, the desert mothers and fathers um, back in, you know, the third and fourth centuries and kind of the birth of, the contemplative monastic tradition um, in how that sort of radical way of living, even though that isn't considered like mission, it was still such an intentional way of being in the world, mm-hmm. the way of being together mm-hmm. in community. Well, and I suppose it was, you know, what we today would call ministry. It was just far more nuanced than a group from a church boarding a plane for for a week away. Totally, totally. Um, and it's like somewhere along the way, action and contemplation like became divorced. Yeah. And in the in the West, there was, you know, mainly a focus on action, on outward outward action and and mission, and that's really impacted yeah. everything which it, it seems like it coincided with uh you know imperialism too and colonization and things like that totally yeah and the you know the missionary movement grew up alongside mm. colonization and the two um were just in in bed together not to mention crusades yes yep um and that's that's a thing that I think it's been helpful for me to learn that history in in a way that I can you can see how some of that persists mm. um, in different ways. It's yeah. colonialism, of course, doesn't overtly exist anymore, but um, the neo neo colonial kind of the new colonial. Um, it, there's still, I would say, the existence of colonial attitudes and yeah. assumptions. In, and I see it a lot in, in myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like proselytizing not only, 
uh, a system of belief, you know, religion-wise, but a, a way of seeing, a way of life. Right. And yeah, I see it in sort of the attitude that um, the Westerners are the whole ones who are going to kind of mm-hmm. condescend to help the broken ones. And it really makes mission in this kind of even secular service work, because it isn't just it really isn't just Christian mission. Yeah. That's what I've focused on. And, um, you know, that's my inheritance. But even, you know, secular work, there's still lots of implicit. Oh, yeah. In my own experience, my gap year experience in Uganda, whenever I was there for, you know, five or six months, you know, Mzungu, Mzungu, I was still always that white person from the West who had no theological training and yet was trusted to preach, you know, commissioned to to teach or um, had even financially all these resources. And so it's not even, it seems, our own perspective, but um, the perspective of others as well, which kind of only bolsters that within us too. Right. And because part of that feels good. like. Oh. Sure. Like we're human <laughs> and and power feels good. And then you feel really humble because you're going to hell. Right. Then you got your check that box, go home, feel better. Right. And I think at its core, what I, I see mission as this amazing opportunity for disruption to occur mm. in us um, in kind of uh, I mean, disruption is what often facilitates spiritual growth, right? Yeah. Or any any form of growth. But sometimes that's precluded um, in these cross-cultural, you know, endeavors that that we're involved in because we frame it as we are going to do this project, we're going to do this trip or whatever, which isn't, it, it's, not, it's not bad at all. And again, like I, I'm certainly for mission, but just shifting, um, mm. it would bring more of a posture of humility and more of a posture of learning because yeah. especially short term mission, like when we do, you know, one or two week trips or whatever that churches do. And it's, it's like a $4 billion industry in the U S and it's, uh, certainly like a cultural phenomenon. Um, and there's, there's potential for it to catalyze transformation in us. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not usually framed in a way that there's an openness to mm-hmm. that. It, it's more, of course, framed as we're going to we're going to help in you know complete yeah. this project, whatever. Well, it, it seems like what you're talking about is is that word contemplative again, coming with it, a contemplative approach, that openness to mystery, openness to being changed, openness to receiving while there, rather than simply coming in and giving and providing. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where I love to kind of look at the integration of pilgrimage. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were even saying that. It seems like that it's a pilgrimage because you're going and you're experiencing challenges and you're, in a way, becoming transformed by them with that openness. Yeah, precisely. And I think it's a really helpful a really helpful shift like so instead of because we're usually in mission there's always a strategy there's always goals and plans and strategies um instead of there's not much emphasis on story so i feel mm. like with, with pilgrimage we we shift 
um, there isn't really a strategy necessarily, but instead there's a story. Um, yeah. And rather than like this posture of we're going to create change or help or save, there is instead this posture of transformation. Mm. Uh, and there's a there's also more of a humility and and a sense that we can honor the divine that's already present. Yeah. Um, and I think that's particularly important because we often hear um, phrases like we're going to bring Jesus to this place or bring Jesus to these people. And it's like, well, the divine is already there and present. Mm -hmm. It's up to us mm -hmm. to kind of discern how how that's happening. Um, and I think the pilgrim, the posture of the pilgrim, um, more one of humility and journeying toward um, inner transformation mm -hmm. as much as outer transformation and less kind of focus on cerebral things yeah. and more like about this embodied encounter and like mm -hmm. even the encounter with the you know the other who is culturally and linguistically and in every way shape and form different from us and how can these kind of encounters change us rather than mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. just want to change them yeah um look more like us well and I, I think i wonder if you could define you know we're kind of been throwing that word around for a while now contemplative um and contemplation but what you're describing seems like how you might define it so how, how would you you know let's get it out there how would you define um a contemplative approach because i i hear you describing it already and it seems like it's not just uh how we approach maybe these service oriented projects abroad, but how even we approach them in everyday life, like when they come up in our right. own country or just at home, you know, going to the store, going to work. Yeah, I think it's all mystical, right? It... <laughs> hard to put down. I don't down. know. Yeah, you're putting me on the spot here. No, it is hard to put down <laughs> in a sense because it isn't it, it, it could. Yeah, it's it, it's hard to define certain. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like what Richard Rohr would say, he would rattle off something uh -huh. like, okay, there it is. But <laughs> I mean, this posture of, um, of awareness mm. and even, even I wouldn't hesitate to use the word prayer or prayerful, but mm. not in the sense of just like reciting prayers or yeah. even silently praying, but prayer as, um, as a, as a posture yeah. of paying attention. And I think a lot of it is how are we paying attention? The mm. contemplative lens, like what are we holding in our field of awareness? Not necessarily just literally if we're, um, whether it's serving or grocery shopping or discerning how we're going to respond to a crisis, but um, like, are we holding generally, like have we created space for awareness of our own yeah. cultural lens or how is this, uh, theology, how is this theology going to impact how I show up in mm, this mm -hmm. village in Uganda or mm -hmm. in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and just, um, yeah, adopting a lens that is aware of, of kind of reality in, in a way. Yeah. Well, it seems like a presence, an ongoing presence to self, an ongoing presence, awareness to, of God of sacred movement, um, 
to the other and, and to your surroundings as well, which, you know, with these cross-cultural trips, especially, it's not simply um, our interactions with others that kind of shake us up a bit, but even, um, you know, the engagement of the culture, which is kind of easy to avoid if we go and stay um, in a in a cloistered Western place instead of embedding ourselves in this this new foreign territory. Yeah. And I think that that's, yeah, spot on. I think, um, the, like you mentioned presence and just in being presence. Um, I think the ego comes in a lot in this Mm. kind of work, like the ego, the false self is, is so relevant because I mean, if I look back and reflect like on my own journey, so much of it was about, um, me finding meaning and purpose, which I wouldn't necessarily equate with ego, but yet I still wasn't necessarily very aware of, okay, one of the main sort of a big impetus for this is because I feel the deep need for, to feel a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, but mm-hmm. again, that's still about, mm-hmm. that's still about me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I would say, uh, I mean, the ego, it always wants control. Mm. Um, the ego doesn't really want to be present. It doesn't want to have peace because that threatens the ego with kind of annihilation. So it's difficult to relinquish control, but so much of cross-cultural engagement has been about because of the colonial tradition from from which the modern missionary movement has emerged um, is about control. Even, even control that doesn't look unhealthy necessarily, but more is sort of um, the Westerners want to be in the center. And because that's what we've known. That's what we've known. Which, you know, if we want to bring this conversation home, especially with the recent events in Charlottesville and the conversations that, you know, we're building up even years and I know even generations up until this point, it, it makes sense if what we know and we want to stay in our comfort zone. Um, and yet there needs to be an awakening there is what I hear. I hear you saying an awakening to, to presence and an awakening to, to ego. Precisely. Yeah, indeed. And I think that might be the one word that encompasses, like, I think the, the work that I've been trying to do, the, the writing I've been engaged in and just kind of, a that, that's kind of a summary, like the awakening like awakening to mm. whether it's personally with regard to the fault self or um, just kind of collectively the church awakening to like what's what's really going on under the surface when we talk about mission in, in cross-cultural service. But yeah, we're just wake, waking up so yeah. that, that strikes a chord. Well, what does that what does that look like in in daily life and response to what's going on around the country or in response to doing work in different areas of the world? I think a key part of it is recognizing our own brokenness. Mm. Um, I think that's, I think that's a, a huge starting point that I know for a lot of my life, to be honest, I completely, completely miss that because there was always the focus on what can I do? How mm-hmm. can I serve? Which was kind of in a way as you said sometimes fueled by that brokenness yes that need for that affirmation right exactly and so then this kind of work 
can potentially become medication. Like we need mm-hmm. it. We mm-hmm. need to do it compulsively. Like I remember a phase in my life where I was like, I'm, I'm a, a missionary or nothing at all. Like it's just my full identity was, was wrapped up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's maybe a little different tack than to your question. But I do think that this, there's a certain like a primary task um, in knowing our wounds knowing our story and, and owning our own brokenness. Um, and I think that in itself helps facilitate more of an authentic spirituality. Mm. Um, and just knowing like our deep needs and our need for, um, our need for help, like our need for say spiritual direction and psychotherapy, at least for me, those two practices that I increasingly really see as spiritual practices um they were so vital in coming to awaken and coming to see what i could not see on my own and to even just naming patterns like including what what we talked about and what you just said um with regard to kind of covering up some of the woundedness through the the drivenness to to do more and do better um but this um, this process of coming to see what we what we haven't seen or what mm-hmm. we have chosen just to ignore because it's a painful reality and yeah. I, there's lots of hard conversations happening um, in in many different spaces regarding race lately, which these tragedies I think help facilitate in some way and in other ways like like Charlottesville tragedies. Um, regarding race and white supremacy, I think in other ways, um, some people want to shut down and you mm-hmm. end up seeing the be- mm-hmm. maybe the best and the worst yeah. of people. But, um, and again, that's a, it's a very, very disruptive process to come to really own um, the white privilege, really own and know and understand like this country was founded on racist principles Mm -hmm. like what we see happening now is merely a symptom of an underlying illness Mm. that like i knew nothing about for the majority of my life Mm -hmm. and like even as i say that there's a level of grief there like look at somebody who's been for years and years had a posture toward um wanting to like a heart for justice say Mm -hmm. and a of wanting to act compassionately toward the disenfranchised. And yet I was blind to my own blindness. I was blind to all of these conversations that um, many of us are having lately Mm -hmm. um, regarding race. I had absolutely no idea. Um, But it's a it's a hard process. Mm -hmm. And it and it it asks something of us and it, it, it asks um, it requires lament and it requires like it requires tears and it requires difficult yeah. things that we have the privilege to opt out of. Um, like the part of the core of, of white privilege, I think, is the privilege to not even have to think about race because mm-hmm. we don't need to think about it on a on a daily basis like people of color do. Um, and so, yeah, that's been certainly a, a part of my part of my process in in recent years that I'm still 
trying to find ways to press into more and not just pull back from. Well, and I almost hear in that a prayer of, you know, an ongoing prayer, you know, God, help me be more aware mm. of, you know, because it's, it's hard to know where to begin, um, to, especially if you're hearing these conversations and um, convictions for the first time that you're actually just now starting to have this this conversation with yourself, with others, or just witnessing it and kind of that defense mechanism goes up of um, unsure about whether whether you want to face face that or not. Um, when we think of it in a contemplative stance, it, it seems like it, it is this ongoing prayer of, you know, show me, bring me to awareness. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I think the contemplative lens can help. Um, it can facilitate a deeper growth and a healthier growth. I do think there is place when we're talking about um, race and privilege and white supremacy for some degree of of guilt or, or mm -hmm. shame. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's healthy to stay there. And I do also think that that's why people shut down and they can't have the conversation because they're they're um, they want to protect that the shame there they can't deal with more pain or something but the contemplative lens um, and contemplative practice whatever it whatever it may be and just that prayerful posture that you're speaking to of of openness in in Allow, allowing ourselves to see yeah. what's there and to know like that things can yeah. shift and change and we can become um, advocates and we, we can become healthier people in terms of how we engage with ourselves in, in the world. Um, but the, that contemplative practice certainly can facilitate yeah. that. Well, and it seems like an uh, openness to relationship too, the way you're describing it, uh, openness to the other. So even that prayer is not just for yourself that you might become aware of, but that you um, hear, you, you look to not just hear from God, but hear from the souls of another as well. And I, I, I think, you know, that's very, if we want to be Trinitarian, you know, that healing, that true connection happens in relationship. And so that seems like an important piece to this as well, whether it's these conversations at home, whether it's um, something abroad, if you're doing some sort of service work, you know, whether it's going to KFC with, <laughs> with the, you know, the homeless youth that live around you, it's um, that connection seems to be what kind of breaks down those barriers that brokenness has built up on all sides. Yes. Yeah. And putting ourselves in spaces um, that we do encounter people who look different than us and listening listening to their stories and their perspectives. I think regarding race, for me personally, it was sitting with people, um, friends and acquaintances and even strangers in certain circumstances uh, and seeing their tears and seeing mm. their deep, deep suffering that I had not, I was unaware of 
that um, in a way rattled and shocked me, but it also facilitated something um, because it was disruptive to see because it's yeah. no longer just a category it's yeah. no longer just a construct it's mm-hmm. no longer just something sociological or or, or theoretical um, it is a human being yeah. there in front of you weeping because of how you and your majority culture that you're a member with have treated their group historically and every day and in dailiness and it's like that does something to the human heart unless you have a heart of stone which I don't think any of us do that that does something to you but if you're just you know maybe if you're hearing about some of these issues on on CNN or reading articles or hearing about issues on Fox News or whatever it may be like like if you're not if you don't have a face in front of you. Um, there's so much power in that and it only takes a little little bit of openness mm. I I think anyway in my experience and what I've seen it doesn't take that much it just takes a bit of an openness um, for a yeah. seed to get planted mm. for something to begin mm. to germinate yeah Well, these are questions I like to ask each of my guests. So if you were going on pilgrimage, where would you want to go next? You know, when I think of pilgrimage, I tend to, it's, I guess, in the classical sense, um, in my mm-hmm. experience of pilgrimage, I've been to several sites that have um, are related to uh, the Virgin Mother, oh, Mother wow. Mary. Um, so I've been to uh, Lourdes. Um, and I had a really powerful experience at Lourdes. And I, I think about it often. Yeah. It's a, a place known for healing, right? Yes. Yes. And I know, like, it's not just something that you you show up to on your own. Whenever you go, there's always a lot of other people there coming to seek healing in so many forms. And so that even feels applicable to to our conversation that you've got people from all sorts of different sides, but whenever they are um, struck with vulnerability, um, hearts to hearts can meet in a way that um, even I'm sure being around the presence of all of those others is healing. Mm, Yeah, love that. What journey are you on right now in your everyday life? Yeah, many different journeys. Um, I have been trying to be really intentional um, with an afternoon meditation practice mm. as well as with morning um, exercise, exercising. So that seems like a journey of knowing your body too. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and it's like how quickly I forget. It's like the things I already know, like I find myself forgetting them. Yeah. Um, however, however uh-huh. that works, like, like I know I can't eat wheat, but but it looks you know, so good. Easy to forget. Yeah, that piece of pizza says something otherwise uh-huh. to my brain and the opiate receptors uh-huh. that want that sugar or that wheat. Well, I'm sure you're going to a place that doesn't have as much pizza to tempt you because you've your both your daily journey and 
you know, it seems like a, you know, a journey abroad to a pilgrimage uh, will be changing soon when you head to Colombia. That's right. Yep. And that's been part of daily life lately, too. Um, just preparing for that move to yeah. Medellin, Colombia, um, in partnership with Word Made Flesh, which is a international development and advocacy organization that does um, some phenomenal work in a bunch of different countries around the world. Um, so yeah, so a big, big transition yeah. is upon us. Yeah. Um, and yeah, even um, like the practice of fundraising for that and what, what that looks like has been a part of daily life. So lots of lots of pieces oh, yeah. um, that if we had spoken like a year ago or six months ago, I would answer this question very um, differently. Yeah. Well, we'll be sure to put um, a link to a way people can support you in the show notes in case that would feel... be great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Do a little of your work for you. I appreciate that. Yeah. As we close up, what are, and we, we bounced around with this too, but what are some practices that we can end with or practical tools to help listeners uh, be contemplative activists, practice contemplative activism at mm -hmm. home and abroad? You know, I really go back to spiritual direction. Um, and despite being a spiritual director now, like I've been in spiritual direction as a directee for probably eight years. Um, and I continue to be and that has probably been the single most impactful um, practice. Um, so yeah, I definitely it's just it's such an, uh, an amazing space to get in touch with the depths. Well, it seems like a way to keep these conversations that we've been talking about here in in the forefront. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, and any form for me, like any form of meditation, whether it's um, contemplative prayer or just insight meditation or, or breath work, um, that's really been helpful for me to cultivate um, just a sense of presence in the midst of all the busy mm -hmm. and another practice um and this is certainly not a daily practice or even lately a weekly practice but the prayer of examine has been really helpful for me mm. my own walk um in regard to discernment um to a degree but really just getting in touch with the movements of of god within like where am i experiencing consolation and desolation Mm. as Ignatian, uh, Ignatius put it. Yeah, that seems like almost a, an ideal practice of contemplative activism because it has that contemplative piece and the active piece in that you are going over the stuff of your day and you are taking that and praying into the day that follows and you're revisiting that over and over again. So even if you didn't have the opportunity to see a spiritual direct in this season, um, that attentiveness, that attunement to what is moving within you, both spiritually and, you know, even the ego and that showing up um, and just always being at work. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for um, being present with us in this conversation. Thank you. It was great. To, it was great to chat. And I feel like we could go on for another 
one, two, three hours. There's so much more, but this was this was great. So yeah, thank you for uh, thinking about me and inviting me to be on here with you. Yeah. Well, to close us out, could you um, offer a blessing up for the time shared and um, for everyone who is listening as they carry these words and form a practice of contemplative activism of their own? That sounds great. So I have a blessing by one of my favorite author poets, John O'Donohue. I'm sure he's one of your favorites too. Oh yeah, they they know him already. All right. And they will continue to. <laughs> Here's, here is one more blessing from him. May you awaken to the mystery of being here and enter the quiet immensity of your own presence. May you have joy and peace in the temple of your senses. May you receive great encouragement when new frontiers beckon. May you respond to the call of your gift and find the courage to follow its path. May the flame of anger free you from falsity. May warmth of heart keep your presence aflame and may anxiety never linger about you. May your outer dignity mirror an inner dignity of, of soul. May you take time to celebrate the quiet miracles that seek no attention. May you be consoled in the secret symmetry of your soul. May you experience each day as a sacred gift woven around the heart of wonder. joining with us today. Find episode notes and sign up to receive updates at asacredjourney.net slash podcast and subscribe to Pilgrim Podcast through iTunes or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. If you liked this episode, I'd be grateful if you'd leave an iTunes review. It only takes a few minutes and will help other seekers just like you join us on this journey. Find out how to leave an iTunes review at asacredjourney.net slash podcast. I'll see you in two weeks for a conversation with therapist and yoga instructor, Jenny Wade. Until then, blessings on the journey.